Welcome to another edition of the Thriving Churches podcast. This is Tammy Jackson. I'm the senior pastor here at Aniston First United Methodist Church. And today I am alone on the podcast. You see Pastor Kyle Bryan and his wife Leanne welcomed a new life into their family. Meredith was born recently and he is taking a few days with his family for paternity leave. Um, Pastor Davis Johnson is away at a conference. And so today you get just me to talk about this. Today, I want to talk about the last two characteristics from the book, Autopsy of a Deceased Church by Tom Rainer. Um, and next time on our final podcast in this series, I want to talk about the book Anatomy of a Revived Church as we really focus in on now that we know the characteristics that churches that did not succeed, that their life organism came to an end and they died. The things that they shared in common, now that we are aware of those, what do we do? We can examine which of those we have, which of those we think place us in jeopardy or peril, and to what extent they do. But we really need to talk about what do we do to prevent that, to make sure that we're not at risk of being a deceased church. But let's talk about the final two today, and then we will begin to move into what do we do in light of what we have discovered. The final two that I want to talk about are the chapters 9 and 10 in the book, and um, Autopsy of a Deceased Church. Chapter 9 is, the church rarely prayed together, and chapter 10, the church had no clear purpose. Now, for many of us, we would deeply be disturbed if prayer was not a part of our time of worship together. We liked it for there to be prayers But prayer is also something that tends to make us a little bit uncomfortable. I find it can be challenging to find people who are willing to pray in front of groups. I have to be very careful if I'm in a Bible study environment, just randomly calling on somebody to close us in prayer. You want to know that someone will do that. I will even tell you that when the staff does a huddle on Sunday mornings to get ready before worship, one of the things that we do is pray together. But whenever Matt Hadley, our director of music and worship arts, says, would anybody like to volunteer to pray for us this morning? If you look around, you will see a lot of people who will not make eye contact. Like they look away, they look at the floor, they suddenly need to check their tie or what's in their pocket or what's on their phone. There's something that makes us uncomfortable about that. We also know that in worship, we're not comfortable with extended periods of silence. At one point in a recent sermon series, I introduced 30 seconds of silence at the beginning of our time of pastoral prayer, which can also be called prayers of the people. And we we got a good bit of feedback about it because people got uncomfortable. Um, it, is a, it is a little bit awkward if you are worshiping online because you get 30 seconds of like nothing moving and nothing happening on the screen. But that moment of connection, of deeply ingrained times of prayer, becomes really significant to us. And one of the things I think we really want to lean into as growing disciples is to move beyond that uncomfortableness in prayer. Because prayer is like having a conversation with God. We don't have to choose the right words. We don't have to flower it up. This is not the time to lapse into Shakespearean English with these and thous and thuses. It's just a conversation. And one of the things that Tom Rainer discovered 
was that when he looked at churches that didn't make it, they had quit praying together. They quit having a strong prayer ministry, a strong prayer focus. And churches that successfully revitalized are ones that recognized they were not emphasizing prayer enough, and they returned to a good practice of prayer. We have a lot of examples um, in the New Testament. We have Jesus who prays before his difficult time, and it certainly wasn't the only time he prayed. The Gospels talk frequently about he went away from the group early in the morning for some time alone um, to pray. He does 40 extended days before he launches his ministry and then an extended time of prayer before he knew what he knew was going to be difficult. It becomes really important that we bathe our actions in prayer. Many of you may be familiar with something called the Walk to Emmaus, which is a Christian renewal event. I'm not going to share with you a lot of details about it because that becomes part of the power of the experience for you. But I will share with you that a Walk to Emmaus is bathed in prayer. The team that leads people on that walk meet together for many weeks before, and they spend significant portions of their time together as a team in prayer for those who are coming and for those who will be ministering to others and for how that uh, experience will unfold. And then even during the time of the walk, the walk itself is bathed in prayer. There's a prayer chapel and there are people praying for it. I know many churches that have a time of prayer going on during the worship service. Someone, um, sometimes a small group of someones, is praying throughout the time of worship that people would be able to connect with God. I know groups that have met before worship every Sunday and they pray through the chapel or the sanctuary. They walk through the Sunday school classrooms and do those kinds of things. I have led other churches in efforts where we pray for our communities, for our government officials and leaders, for civic leaders, for businesses, for residents, for those who would come into any classroom or school or business or area there. And so there's many, many ways that we can do that. You can also, if you're not comfortable praying extemporaneously, at least to begin with, you can use prayers that have been written. The words of others can give words to the feelings of our heart. Um, But prayer and praying together seems to be a significant part of churches that are still fulfilling their mission. That makes sense to me, because if we're going to be the church that God wants us to be, then we need to stay in close communication with God about what that is and how exactly that looks and how it unfolds here in Anniston and Calhoun County, Alabama. So it's important that we... uh, we give God a call and or we take his call when he calls us and we listen and we talk and we engage in hearing one another. So I'm, I'm going to tell you that I it's one of the things that you will be should be expecting to see from me in the recent in the soon coming future is adding times of prayer um, for us and prayer opportunities for you, um, whether we meet as a group or whether we meet online or whether you pray individually. And then we move into chapter 10. And chapter 10, which title is The Church Had No Clear Purpose, we talk about a church drifting from the reason that it exists. And I think it's very true that many churches do tend to drift from our mission. Our mission can be uncomfortable. It can be difficult. And so we count things and we focus on things that are easier for us to do. Tom Rainer shares a story at the beginning of this chapter 
that I found interesting. It's the story of um, a practice being led for an Olympic team, the United States hockey team. And you may be familiar with this story because they were called the Miracle on Ice. It's from um, the 80s story of an Olympic team that they're they're struggling and they really are not sure that they can beat the Soviet Union. That was back when the Soviet Union existed. Um, some of you who may not even be old enough to remember that um, are now hearing about Russia again. Russia was part of the Soviet Union. So he, the team that Coach Herb Brooks is coaching is made up of students from a number of colleges and universities, and they're just not coming together well. And so being a little bit frustrated with them um, and having lost one of the, uh, having lost already, they are struggling with how they're going to play as a team. And so the coach has them really doing sprints, and he's like working them to the point of exhaustion. Other coaches became concerned about that. But when they would come by, he would ask them, who do you play for? Who do you play for? And they would enthusiastically give him the name of the college or the university that they played for, and he would have them keep working. Finally, One of the hockey players, all breathless, gasping for air, um, was asked by Coach Brooks, who do you play for? And he said, I play for the United States of America. And that became the defining moment for the team. They finally got what Coach Brooks was trying to tell them. They had been playing for other purposes and not playing for their real purpose. They were going to the Olympics to represent the United States of America. That's who they had to be playing for. Whatever else it might accomplish, whatever college or university might be proud of them or get some increased glory from it, they were playing for the United States of America. The same thing is true of churches. We may have many reasons that we come, many things that we like, But what is our purpose? What are we playing for? Rainer goes on to talk about a number of different things. And he says that when they interviewed churches in the last years of their life, the former members would say things like, we were just going through the motions. Everything we did just seemed like we were just in a rut. I felt like we were playing a game called church. We had no idea what we were really supposed to be doing. We stopped asking what we should be doing for fear that it would require too much effort or too much change. We became more attached to our ways of doing church than we did in asking the Lord what he wanted us to do. That's very closely tied with what we talked about from chapter nine of prayer, making sure that we're in connection with God to see what God wants us to do. It can become very easy for us to focus on something other than our true purpose. One of the things that can happen is our ritual actions, our pieces of the worship service. We come to think of those as the essence of worship, that they are worship. Now you can go through the motions and over and over in scripture, the prophets get on to the nation of Israel for going through the motions. Yes, you're coming and making your sacrifices. You're showing up for the holy days. You're having the festival. You're abstaining from the whatever, but your heart's not in it. We cannot let ourselves disengage our feelings, our emotions, our intention 
from the actions that we perform, or we end up just going through the motions. We don't just come and worship on Sundays because Sunday is the day we're supposed to do that. We come on Sunday. Christians shifted to that day because it was the day that Christ was resurrected. We come to worship God. We can forget that those ritual actions are supposed to be pathways that connect us with God. They're not the end themselves. They're the means to the end, which is connection, worship, and glorification of God. So if we can forget our purpose, what exactly is the purpose of the church? Historically and in our definitions as United Methodist Christians of what the church exists to do, the church really exists for three reasons. One, we exist to glorify God. Two, we exist to witness to Jesus. And three, we exist to grow in the Holy Spirit. So we glorify God with our worship, but worship isn't just what we do for an hour or so on Sunday morning. Our entire lives are supposed to be acts of worship. So we're glorifying God by resetting our thinking, which is what worship is supposed to do, to do something incredibly countercultural, step away from the world, come into the sanctuary, into the presence of God, and decide once again to submit our will to the will of God. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done in me as it is in every place that you have control because I want you to be in control of me. So we glorify God with our worship. We also witness to Jesus Christ. So our times of worship together bear witness to the fact that we believe Jesus is the son of the living God the long-awaited Messiah, the one chosen to be the Savior of the entire world, and that he accomplished that work through his life, his death, and his resurrection, and that he's coming again, and that our conviction that everybody needs Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that we grab a bullhorn and we go annoy people or we show up on their doorsteps with tracts, but it means that we invite people to church, we learn about ways to share our faith, to be to show that we follow Christ in our lives, to witness to Jesus, and to help make new disciples. We also exist as a church to grow in the Holy Spirit, to learn more, to be more faithful, to challenge one another, to be spurred on to good works, to figure out how we live as people who have committed our very being to following Jesus Christ in a world where not everybody has. What does that look like when we shop, when we engage in recreation, when we make choices for the things that we do, like career and children and investment of our time? Choosing to invest that time in worship each week is one of the ways that we can witness to our commitment to Christ and that we make ourselves available to grow in the Holy Spirit. In the book, Autopsy of a Deceased Church, on page 75, Rayner says, when they talk to these dying churches, rarely could anyone point to a singular event or historical moment when the purpose was forgotten. Like there was no meeting who went, we're going to change the purpose. There was nothing that happened that they suddenly developed amnesia about what they existed to do. It was a deadly and slow process. We talked way back in chapter one of this book about slow erosion, how we gradually drift from things. We stop noticing it. We do that from our purpose as well. We begin to have events for the sake of events, 
we began to have meals because meals are fun. We began to have egg hunts because we've always had an egg hunt. We began to have a 4th of July party because, well, why wouldn't we have a 4th of July party? We do Christmas Eve because I like Christmas Eve. But we need to never forget why. What is the purpose of the church? And where is the purpose represented in what we're doing? Midweek dinners can be a great time to connect with people, to invite people who don't feel comfortable coming to worship on Sunday, but they might come share a meal. It's a time to talk. We don't get to talk and visit a lot in worship because we got one hour for what we do, but you can linger, hear someone's story, find out more about them, um, sit with people that you don't get to sit with. Even over the meal, you'll discover what people enjoy eating and what they do not. Um, an egg hunt can be a great thing to invite people to so that you can introduce them to Jesus, where you can tell the story of Christ's death and resurrection and why it is significant and pivotal to us as Christians, but also in each of our personal lives. And Christmas Eve may be the most meaningful service you experience. Why do we want to have a meaningful worship experience? Because people need meaning in their lives. They need to connect with purpose. They need to find out there's more to Christmas. There's more to a holiday than the materialism and the consumerism and the running ourselves ragged at all the parties and the shopping and the wrapping the end of the year up. That we can pause and we can settle. Because an angel appeared to some shepherds. Because an angel had come to a young woman who said, let it be with me as God wills. And a husband didn't put her away. And she gives birth to the Son of God, who would be our Savior. That's why we do Christmas Eve. So we have to always be reminding ourselves, what is the purpose? And is the purpose being attended to in the decisions we make about those events? One of the sad truths, I think, about the American church is that attendance has become the goal. We count attendance and we count money. But attendance was never the thing. Because you can stand in a garage without being a car. You can dress in a soccer uniform without ever playing soccer. You can buy all the paraphernalia to be a baseball team member. But you're not playing baseball unless you're on a baseball team and you actually play the game. Attending church is for the purpose of achieving a goal. It, it too is the means and not the end. And what is the end? What is the goal? The goal is to make disciples, to introduce people to Jesus. And for those of us who already are disciples to become more like Jesus, we Methodists call that sanctifying grace. So we're interested in assisting God in being provenient grace, the grace that goes before that draws and woos people. We want to be there for the moment that justifying grace happens when they accept that relationship. And then we want to ask them to join us on a journey of sanctifying grace, of becoming more like Jesus for the rest of our lives. We cannot let that outward focus turn into an inward obsession. And let me tell you about the way that we sometimes see this, is when we have a conversation about what will reach new people. How do we share Jesus with the world around us? And when you start mentioning, well, this appeals to this group of people, or this appeals to that group of people, or here's something we might do to reach those who don't come to church, and people will say, well, I don't think we'll be doing that. I don't like that. I don't want to do that. What we say, what we are saying when we say things like that is, 
I don't care if those people find Jesus. I care more about what I like than I do that someone needs Jesus. And the purpose of the church is to help them find Jesus. It's certainly okay for us to have our preferences, but if we prioritize our own preferences over that which connects people with Jesus, we are failing to fulfill our purpose. So we must never forget the church is one of the only things in the world that exists for people who are not yet part of it. We exist. We've been invited into ministry with God to reach those who don't yet know Jesus. It's our primary goal. And so it's sometimes why pastors are always pushing us. We're always pushing to what do we need to be doing? How do we reach new people? We should be doing something that brings in. If what we're doing is not bringing in new people, then maybe we're not doing all that we were supposed to. It doesn't mean our preferences are wrong. It just means that sometimes our preferences have to take a back seat to our purpose. So the characteristics of a deceased church, according to Tom Rainer and his research in the book, Autopsy of a Deceased Church, I'm going to run down them one more time. Slow erosion, things gradually decline and we don't notice it. The past becomes the hero. We make the best days behind us. We're always looking back, spending more time looking in the rearview mirror than the front windshield. The church refused to look like the community. We stop working with those right around us. We become disengaged from our community, and we have people that we don't welcome into our community because they're not like us. The fourth one is the budget moves inwardly. We quit investing in mission, and we start investing in comfort. Um, The Great Commission becomes the great omission. We're not reaching new people. We become preference-driven. We prioritize our preferences, the things we want, over what we should want. Pastoral tenure decreases. That's the hard one with Methodists. Um, We get assigned, but it will become where churches don't want pastors to stay long and pastors don't want to stay long. Churches rarely prayed together. We talked about that one today. And the church had no clear purpose. We exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And then finally, we become obsessed with our facilities as though the church building was the church. The building is the place where the church meets and our facilities should be about function and not about themselves. So all of those become really, really challenging and really, really hard for us to hear. But sometimes when we are not as healthy as we ought to be, the doctor has to give us a dose of real good medicine. He has to talk real hard to us and say, you got to lose weight. You got to exercise more. You got to get more sleep. You're not healthy and it's going to have consequences. You will not survive as long or have as full of a life as you should if you don't take better care of yourself. So looking at autopsy of a deceased church, looking at thriving churches is about discovering how we can live longer and be more effective for as long as we do live there. So next time on the final one of this podcast series, I'm going to really lean into anatomy of a revived church, and we'll talk about, so what do we do? How do we avoid falling victim and prey to those characteristics that cause churches to die? Thank you for going on this journey with me so far. Uh, May God bless us. May God call us to faithfulness and help Anniston First United Methodist Church be a thriving church that is making mature disciples 
and is reaching new people for Jesus, transforming the community around us to the glory of God. Thank you for joining me. See you next time.